Hello and welcome to another episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. In this episode of the podcast, I catch up with current teacher, Adam Higgins. Adam teaches an all-boys school in the southeast of England and has developed some great ideas and strategies to teach boys, especially those at the lower attaining end of the spectrum. Adam shares with me lots of useful practical hints and tips that he has developed to support his students to ensure they maximise their progress during their time with him. In terms of context for you, the listener, this episode was recorded in January 2021 during lockdown number three. Without further ado, it's time to listen to Adam's View from the Lab. Um, I wanted to start with a couple of questions just about yourself and about your interest in science, because I often ask my guests um, where they got their inspiration from. So before you became a teacher and just generally in science, what was the first thing that kind of inspired you to kind of go in that scientific direction? Um, it's sort of a range of things. I don't think I've really taken like a traditional route into science teaching like most people have. Um, I did science A-levels at school, and of course, I really liked that. And apart from that, I, I like the weird things, the engaging things. Um, I know most science teachers go into teaching for the love of science, but for me, that's a that's a really fine balance between the actual love of teaching and science. Um, it's definitely the best subject to teach because of the practical elements, the whiz-bang elements, um, and just engaging students so well. But I think sort of inspiration-wise is, is thinking back to when I was at school and I had some excellent teachers for science, and I, I do try to model myself on them. So you had a, you had a positive experience um, kind of in terms of when you came into teaching. Was there anything you did before teaching in terms of um, like career or, or projects you've done before, before you decided to kind of step into the classroom? Yeah, I, I didn't go to university straight away. So I took a couple of years out after my A-levels and and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And, and it, it's completely different to teaching. I sold cars for a couple of years. Okay. <laughs> um, which is, is so unrelated. But then when you think about it, you have actually picked up some skills. So uh, sort of persuasion, um, that's a massive thing in sales. And that sort of relates into it. But I also think the organization skills, lots and lots of people, and it's it's not a bad thing at all, go straight into teaching. And, and you don't know what the outside world's like because teaching's such a bubble. And it's you've been in school, you go to university and you go back to school. So you're just in that education bubble. So I think doing something different really, really helped. And it sort of it made me want to teach more than if I would have made that decision when um, most people would at A levels or just beyond. Yeah, I was going to, th- I was going to say the uh, the salesman is probably quite a good uh, kind of uh, career to when you think about quite a lot of um, things that are very similar in terms of selling things about knowing your product, knowing the features. And I guess um, understanding your customer, which, which we could kind of link to knowing uh, the type of students are in front of us about what information you, you may give people and what is relevant for them. Um, how do you feel about that? Do you think there's this kind of, it's quite a good crossover, I think. It is, and it's the questions as well. And, and you sort of, it's been a little bit relentless with the questions until you get what you want. So it's fishing for the answers um, and sort of guiding leading questions. And I, I do think that really, really helps, especially with the lower attaining pupils, but then sort of on a more pastoral level as well, because teaching's massively, massively just in the classroom and just content wise. But if you think of that pastoral level and you're sort of you're not digging for information, but but you just want to build those relationships, that rapport. I think the two of them fed in quite nicely to each other. Definitely. I mean, did you find the first couple of years in your teaching career, um, everyone who's ever ever taught has always made a few mistakes in those first two, three years. Is there anything that kind of stands out about a mistake you made um, and you had to learn from it in a sense um, that you definitely wouldn't wouldn't make, you know, going into next September? I've I've made loads of mistakes and I'm 
I think it's it's good to admit the amount of mistakes you make um sort of on a practical level um one of the things I definitely say is try out experiments I've done them there was one observation in my training year and I did a whoosh bustle and it, it ended up lifting the full ceiling a little bit so there are things like that this year I've set off a fire alarm in our new building and so there's lots and lots of things that I've done and it sort of it makes you reflect more um on what you're actually doing in terms of teaching things as well I've always been quite lucky um or for the past couple of years I've always had two classes within the same year group um and you can always trial something out on one class especially GCSE wise and triple science wise and then you sort of learn from that and next time teaching it is so much more straightforward and you know the pitfalls um so yeah it's, it's definitely if you can do it if you can get more than one class in one year group it's it's a lot of marking the same thing however you do pick up on the points and you sort of realize where you've gone uh well and where you've not gone so well in your explanations as well yeah definitely that repetition if you if you can get it it's not always possible uh in in school sometimes you don't see or teach that that lesson and for another year sometimes i know but um it's good if you can get that repetition and, and learn from it and we spoke earlier before the podcast began about uh boys school in general and i said that all, i think uh, me included would be quite fearful about going into a boys school um in an all-male environment um and it kind of appeals to some more than others, I suppose. But you said that uh, you yourself had that background. So maybe that fear of maybe a single gender school was less of a hurdle for you. Would, it, would that be true? Yeah, definitely. Um, everyone's got these massive misconceptions about what all boys schools are. And from the outside, you think testosterone, you think um, boys being boys. But it's completely different, especially this year. We've, we've been using bubbles and our school's tiny compared to other schools. I think we're the smallest school in the borough. Um, and we've been using key stage bubbles and it's really helped to keep the boys young and I know that sounds really weird and I'm not even just talking about immature Um, I'm talking about boys grow up too quickly all all students grow up too quickly boys girls but by keeping them that way and just with boys there's there's no girls to impress I know that's a cliche Um, when you watch them they are staying young it might have to do with um, the year sevens missing so much of the last year of primary school as well but I do think there are these misconceptions that boys schools are tough, that um, there's behavior issues, that there's testosterone. But personally, I'd, I'd rather deal with 30 boys than um, a bunch of teenage girls. Because at least <laughs> with boys, you know you know what you're getting. Um, if you tell them off 10 minutes later, they're absolutely fine. Um, and you can build that good rapport with them. And what kind of school, uh, what kind of community do you serve? Are you kind of an urban environment or could you describe kind of where you are geographically and what kind of um, what your students like generally? Um, we're we're on the outskirts of London. So we're in Havering um, and it depends who you ask. We're either Essex or Havering, depending on who you ask. And um, so we've got some inner city qualities, but then a 10 minutes drive and, and there's, there's lots of greenery and you're you're in Essex. We're We're in the middle of sort of a very affluent area so Gidea Park and then some areas which don't have so much money so it makes a nice um a nice mixture within the school so we do have quite a lot of pupil premium quite a lot of what they label now as disadvantaged students but then we have quite a lot of very very well-off students and it's um it's a change in demographic especially since when I first started and it's it's interesting to watch that now and we're, we're starting to take pupils from prep schools um not many but um handful each year and it is massively massively changing and is it uh, a comprehensive school um yeah it's just a normal school we're part of a trust but we've got um it's a tiny trust again in comparison there's three schools in total and they're all within about 10 minutes drive of each other so um 
they're not the biggest schools in the world as well. So it's not a big commercial trust. It's it's more um, personal than that. Okay. So quite a, kind of a nice community feel. Yeah, definitely. Um, so in terms of uh, boys in, in general, I mean, obviously in your training you may have, may have uh, uh, kind of taught both both genders, but um, is there any kind of common uh, themes you've kind of noticed in your time teaching boys, you think? is is Can, can we kind of um, uh, decide, is, is there a particular way they like to learn or is there more of a preference of a certain type of learning that you have observed in your time and experience in, in your current school? Or is it is it too is it too pigeonholing to say they like this and they like, and they don't like that? Yeah, I think it's really really pigeonholing, and there's lots of preconceptions. So uh, competition's a big one. When you see new teachers come in and they've taught at a mixed school before, sometimes they want to do lots of competition. Um, some training providers as well they talk about competition with boys, but that only really benefits the boys who win, and I think that's really important to realise. And I taught girls for six weeks at my B placement when I was training and the techniques are basically the same. But I think the big thing with boys, and it probably goes for all genders, is they do better when they have that better rapport, when they know that you want them to do well and you have to really, really tell them. And sometimes you're telling them a hundred times before they actually accept it. But once they realise you want them to do well and that you're actually there to help them and um, you sort of make it easier for them to succeed than it is not to succeed. That's that's when life becomes much, much easier and that relationship is much, much more effective. So you don't think um, that they, they're extra competitive. You, you must think maybe if they are in a mixed class, they become more competitive than they would be naturally. Whereas when, when they're with their, uh, you know, with their own uh, cohort, so to speak, they're, they're, they're showing less of those behaviours, would you say? Yeah, possibly. It's, it's really hard to say without like um, a long comparison because I've been in, apart from six weeks, I've, I've always been in all boys schools. Um, but they're not afraid to make the mistakes. And that's what I found when I was in the, the mixed gender school. The girls were very overpowering. Could have just been that school, could have just been those girls or that class. However, um, they're not afraid to make silly comments. And by silly comments, like answers which you'd think are silly at first, they're not afraid to make mistakes. Um, you don't really have that culture of where they laugh at each other's mistakes as well. Um, it's just, I, I, I really, really think if they if they're not afraid to make mistakes, if they're not afraid to make errors, then they're going to learn from that rather than be scared to give answers. And it's it's just creating that whole culture, which is an important thing. Yeah, about uh, making sure that, you know, there's no um, no problems with making mistakes and it's, and it's the way, obviously, you learn uh, and you get better at something, uh, whether that be science or anything. Yeah. Um, thinking about um, the presentation, you did a presentation at the ASC this year, beginning of the year in January, um, focusing specifically on low achieving boys and again there's I think a, uh, a negative um, in, in some schools I saw the negative kind of view of oh I've got these low achieving boys I've got them on a, like a Thursday afternoon or what have you what am I going to do with them how am I going to engage them um, they're, they're a bit tricky um, in terms of the kind of your your everyday kind of routines in terms of just classes generally is there anything you do particularly um, more often uh, with maybe the lower attaining uh, classes in your in your school that you would recommend that teachers uh, perhaps have a go at with these types of classes uh, yeah with the lower attaining sets it's sort of overcoming barriers to start with and overcoming objections and once you start to overcome those you've got the work's a lot more easy to get them into it's a lot more straightforward to get them into so you think about the things which waste time in lessons the things that they're reluctant to do 
And the very first things are, are, are the basic things that you would take for granted with most classes. So writing dates, writing titles, presentations, uh, sticking sheets in. So you just try and find ways to overcome that. And one of the ways that you do or that I do is in booklets. So you have that all printed, that already, and they've come straight in and they're starting work straight away instead of having to worry about writing a date, writing a title, underlining it, uh, presentation worries or sticking sheets in, finding their books. They're just straight into that. And that is it's a more positive start to the lesson rather than having not a battle, but having to get them to do those things, which they'll probably have to do four other times a day anyway. So you kind of think that kind of routine of them knowing what to expect in, in your particular lesson, what they're expected to do at the beginning of the lesson is, is a kind of powerful thing. So you don't have te- uh, don't have exercise books at all. It's just the booklets you, you, you're, you've you made yourself. Yeah. Yeah. With the lower attaining classes, um, the other classes, I just treat them as normal. They've all got their own exercise books. Um, but with with those boys in particular, I just think overcome the objections. Um, it makes no odds to me whether I print out a whole booklet once a half term or whether I print out sheets every single morning. Um, and if it's if it's a quick win, there's it's it's a no brainer for me. I'd rather just get that done and get the lesson started positively. And do you have particular kind of activities? So say you've got your booklets, you're, you're ready with your, your your topic, whatever that might be, maybe it sells. Um, do they have kind of a similar type of activity within your booklets to get them started? Is there something familiar they have, um, whether it be quick questions or labeling diagrams? Is, is there kind of like a, a process you use to decide what that first task is going to be before you maybe engage with a bit of chat at the beginning of the lesson? Yeah, so there's as like a bank of resources I use, um, a bank of activities, and I think if you change it too much, it's it's creating a little bit of uncertainty for them. But if you sort of limit it to five, six, seven maximum resources activities that you're going to do each time, it's good. But it's always things that at least they can do a part of it, so they're going to experience success when they come in. So sometimes we do no goal activities, so you give them a picture, they label everything they know about it, which is everyone will know something about a picture. Um, sometimes it's spider diagrams if you're at the start of a topic just brainstorming what they already know again they'll all know something related to it Um, finding mistakes as well they love finding mistakes that can relate back to ne- uh, the last lesson really really well um, but when you you structure the um, activities you make sure that every single pupil even the one who's who's in theory the weakest can answer at least one part of that activity and take part in that Okay. And do you give them a set time at the beginning of your lesson in terms of often with um, kind of more boisterous classes or energetic classes, um, they need that settling time before you start talking about the, the main part of the lesson. Do you give them a certain amount of time every lesson and, and give them like 10 minutes, 15 minutes before you talk about the lesson? Or do you just let them kind of get on with it themselves and, and you kind of move around the classroom? Um, how do you kind of plan your your input when you've got something new to possibly te- teach them, even if it's a small amount of information? Um, I just go straight into it. So some teachers have different routines. Some will make uh, students line up outside. For me, I I know it's a behaviour technique for some people. I, I'd rather them just walk straight in and get on with the work. Because again, you're not introducing another barrier. They don't have to stand in silence and they'll come in. The only routine that I have is, um, and I know it sounds really, really basic, but I'll get them to be absolutely silent when you do the register. And I don't know why. It was something I was told in my training year and it sort of stuck. But that silence also gives them thinking time so they can look at the activity, they can start that. And then it's sort of judging how long you leave them for that. So just I know we can't really circulate at the moment, um, but in general, when you can circulate, see how how well they're getting on. Um, 
maybe stop use a visualizer if they're struggling a little bit just again so you're teasing uh, that information out of them you're questioning them until you get the information that um you know that they know um and you're just making them realize that they can actually do it but it's just about adapting really i think that's the most important thing i mean it's been quite a difficult year generally um because as you say the no- normal situation would be in, in your classes, I guess, is you would circulate around the classroom. I know we're at the recording this at a time where we're doing, doing homeschooling because it's January uh, 2021. Um, how did, did that affect the class in any way? Because I think it's quite natural for a teacher to, you know, to talk a bit about you know, what, what you're doing and then possibly going and helping students. Was that difficult in your school? And did, did the boys in, in your classes find that tricky because they're used to you getting a bit more input and you know that 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 closer relationship I suppose it's it's been hard but I think the the main adaption that we've made is visualizers so I did have one last year but I use it every single lesson now and you can model what we're doing and so what they're doing with what you're doing and I think that really helps but it's um especially at the moment now we're doing online learning it's it is quite tricky the um the boys who are statemented are going into schools they have lsa support even though as teachers we're at home they'll be in school um so that's good for them they'll be some of the harder to reach ones and then i think again it's just keeping it positive they're they're logging on to five lessons a day and that's that's a lot of screen time for them so if you can just make them feel a little bit safer like they're actually doing well um i think that's really important and even making the lesson start a little bit easier than you normally would, reducing the challenge at the start of the lesson. Just because if you're going into online lessons, asking is quite difficult. The other thing as well, I've, I've done it today, which has made me think of it, is uh, we use Google. There's the Google Hangout feature. So if boys are too shy to ask you a question in the actual chat, they can send you a message on that. And they tend to quite like doing that because they're not really admitting to any of the other boys that they're struggling. Um, but they can get that help and it's, it's sort of um, help on the sly, if you like. So it's, it's sneaking that help to them. Then you're letting them answer the question in front of the whole class. So it's just building that confidence. And it might be false confidence, but it's still confidence which they can build. In terms of kind of the resources you you kind of give to students around your booklets, um, how kind of uh, prescriptive are you in, in that sense? Because I was f- found as a, um, a science teacher that sometimes when you give students work um, and they don't have the knowledge to answer the questions, obviously, if they haven't got the knowledge, they've got to find that knowledge somewhere. So do you how do you um, kind of go for uh, kind of solve that problem do you give them external sources do you always let them have the internet for certain certain activities how do you balance that in terms of um, finding some answers out for themselves uh, which sometimes they might need to do it's really tricky especially with the lower attaining boys Um, for certain lessons I'll give them information sheets so for example cells that's a good example where you can give them an information sheet about the different organelles but I tend not to include that in the booklet and I'll give them uh, that as a separate sheet. And I kind of do it in a couple of ways. First of all, if you give them a booklet and it's got all of these information sheets attached to it as well, it's a lot bigger. And uh, psychologically, they're going to um, think that it's a lot more work. So less likely to start doing it, in my opinion. Um, But it also means you can differentiate it. So if you've not had some of these boys before, Um, or some of these pupils before you can always change it slightly just before the lesson if it's two three lessons in and I think that gives you some of the flexibility that you don't always get in booklets so it's kind of um yeah in terms of that flexibility is really good I was kind of thinking about um 
kind of the principles. How do you um, address things like literacy in those booklets? Do you, is, is there a particular approach you take with, um, you know, learning new keywords? Obviously, in science, there's, there's a lot of um, tier three words, uh, you know, specialised words. How do you kind of approach that with your, your lower attaining boys? Um, it sort of feeds in from what we do with the uh, the EAL students. So you tend to get quite a few of those in the lower attaining classes, especially when they first come to the country. And there's always a list of keywords translated to whatever language it is they speak. Um, but then you sort of try to reuse them as much as you can throughout that lesson. So I, I tend to take most of the literacy pressure off and you'll have word fills in there. But the words that you choose for them to fill will be the really important ones, the ones that you need them to understand. Or when you look at a mark scheme, they're the ones which will be highlighted to get the marks by. Um, but I think lots and lots of repetitions of those words are important. And again, going back to that flexibility, once a week, I'll, I'll give them a recap booklet and I'll make that throughout the week. So um, I'll make a mental note of what they've struggled with. And it is if it is some of those keywords, I'll include parts about that as well. But it's just about that flexibility. But all in all, I, I tend to try and take the literacy pressure off. We will do extended answer questions at some point, but not every single lesson, because I think especially for the foundation papers, you don't need to practice that as much. And um, again, it's a barrier. Lots of lower attaining students will be intimidated by long answer questions. Whereas by the shorter ones, um, thinking for those keywords, the key points is a lot more attainable for them. I was going to ask you about assessments, actually, because often when no attainers, uh, you know, we go for a topic and we give them a test that is 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 it's possibly a foundation type test, but it's a real struggle for them. Do you um, amend your tests a little bit in terms of taking some of the extra bits of information out, some of the longer questions to give them a sense of achievement? Or do you just set them as is um, and give them feedback in that sense? Because obviously there's a bit of there's a balance in, there in terms of keeping them motivated um, that they're doing well and they're making progress. Do you do anything in terms of either exam paper you know, within GCSE or even those, those smaller end of topic tests at Key Stage 3? Do you kind of sift some of the questions that are maybe beyond them at the moment? Um, I, I tend not to. I, I do a couple of things around exam questions. One of them is in those recap booklets. I make sure they have exam questions every single week. And you sort of start off with the um, the lower demand ones, so the multiple choice ones, the single word answers, and you gradually sneak in the higher and higher demand ones. So um, on exam pro, it wouldn't be level three, it'd be level two, you'd sneak in um, eventually. But it's just about building up that confidence gradually. And that's worked quite well, because by the time they get to do an assessment, they're used to the format of it. They they think they can achieve it. And I think it's also about breaking it down into um, realistic targets for them. So at the start of the year, I'll I'll start by talking with them about getting half of the marks in every single question. And then you gradually bump it up a little bit. So instead of saying you've got 40 percent, um, that sounds awful. It, but if you say you're you're nearly halfway, that sounds much better to them. It gives them a better sense of achievement. The other thing which I've tried recently, and I've, I've stolen it off of Twitter, um, a history teacher, I believe, I told them they're having an assessment and they can take in one page of notes. So it made them feel like they were cheating, um, but it was the best page of notes these boys have ever written. Um, and it also helped them to do better in that test as well. It wasn't one that went towards data drops, towards uh, current grades, anything like that. But it's just getting them used to the exam technique, exam style questions, which I think a lot of the time it's easier to think... I, we'll just avoid it till the last second and again yeah encouraging them to maybe thinking about it's a good way to help them with their revision when they maybe obviously don't have that piece of paper but it's good kind of practice to make sure they're they're thinking about what is that what are the key bits of information that would be might be relevant to 
obviously your your end of unit test. And do they do they particularly respond to um, any kind of reward system you like? So you do you do something different for lower attaining boys, or do you just use the school reward system? And they're quite happy with that, and um, just make sure that you know that you are um, giving them praise where praise is due. Of course, um, is there anything different you do in in that sense? Um, there's not too much, but. I think after the assessments, I, I do make a big thing out of it. And where we're such a small school, um, SLT are, are all really personable with, with all of the teachers. So, for example, our head teacher, she's a science teacher as well. So if a boy does well, um, just in conversation, you'll mention it. And then as they see the boys, they'll mention it. They've got a, a great head of year, the, the lower attaining GCSE group that I've got. So, again, she'll mention it. So I just think when the boys know that you're you're praising them to other people, even if they've never had praise by that person before it's it's a positive thing for them as well um and i do think the praise is the important part and when you first get them you a lower set the bottom set if you like traditionally i think people are always a little bit worried about the behavior of them um sometimes they come with this massive um what's the right preconception that they're going to be badly behaved and i think praise is the way forward with them and um just making them not jealous of each other's praise but if you really praise one thing from one of them they all want to impress deep down even though they're not admitting it at some points they all want to be that person who's getting praise so i think that's it's much much better to use a carrot with these than any sort of negative behavior reprimand yeah of course um talking about kind of um concepts and and things you're doing i know we've, we've done less of it this year in terms of practical but um uh, from my t- term teaching, there did seem to be a, a definite, s- slight gender divide in terms of the people who were asking me about practical at the beginning of the lesson. I imagine uh, in an all boys school, everyone's uh, perhaps asking about practical. Or, um, what is the kind of um, feeling you get from your students about practical science? Are they always asking you? And how do you manage that with low attaining in terms of making sure they're doing the practical, not just for the sake of doing the practical, which a lot of children will try and do because it's maybe an escape from a bit of writing which they're not always keen on doing um is there anything you do with your practicals that try and kind of slow them down a little bit and make them think about um why they're doing the practical and the outcome of the practical rather than just um a lot of students sometimes think it's just a means means to an end rather than you know a learning opportunity any thoughts on practical science Uh, yeah i i'm probably worse than them i love doing practicals if i can get a practical in every single lesson and it's meaningful i will um, but I know not every science teacher is of that mind and some people prefer the, the theory side of it. There's, again, a few different things we do with them. Um, I use integrated instructions. So instead of just a page of text for their instructions, uh, you will use a diagram and you'll have text boxes which gradually take them round. I also use tick boxes um, within that. I know that sounds such a small thing, but the boys love ticking off each step they do. And I do think that slows them down as well. Certain practicals will break it down into different parts um, if it's if it's a longer, more complex one. But at the moment, especially, we're using quite a lot of simulations, um, especially with remote learning. So focus e-learning uh, we use at the moment. So today I did resistance of a wire with that lower attaining GCSE class. And um, it's great that you can model it. And I think if you have practicals in regularly, they get into these good habits. And it's also a chance to to include a little bit of literacy whether it be with forming good conclusions, whether it be with the uh, method writing, but also graph skills as well. I think that's another area which a lot of people will shy away from, especially with the lower attaining group. 
yeah, it's always challenging to um, look at those graph skills. And they're, they're actually quite complex as, as you go, go through towards, you know, from 11 to 16. And it's something that often we almost expect them to be able to do somehow magically um, from the maths department. And, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of students really, really struggle with that. Um, so it's good to hear you're kind of getting some good things with practicals. Now, um, what, is, what are the kind of activities you like to do at the end of the week or the end of the term that kind of are still kind of sciencey, but really uh, getting those lower attainers engaged at the end of the week? You know, we all dread those um, Thursday afternoon or Friday. Friday, I always found that Thursday afternoons were perhaps more challenging than Friday afternoons. Everyone seems to be more relaxed than a Friday afternoon, but maybe like, you know, it's Thursday afternoons where you're not quite at the end of the week, the, the kids are getting tired and and obviously the teachers are getting tired. Um, what kind of things would you do you kind of do in terms of put a bit of back energy in that in that lesson and maybe have a bit of fun for the last 15, 20 minutes of a lesson that's still got kind of a, a science focus on it? Anything you like to try like to do? Um, I'm going to sound quite boring when I say this after saying I do all of the practicals. Those are the lessons where I do the recall parts. Um, okay. And I think it's nice because they, they know what they're going to do. It's, it's not a surprise what they're going to do. They're all set up for it. And um, at the end of every one of those lessons, and it might it might make me sound sad or the boys sound sad who I teach, they have um, 25 questions which they try to answer and they try to beat their score from the previous week. And they love that because it is competition, but it's not against each other. It's against themselves. And there's um, there's always a running joke about if they get 25 out of 25, um, they'll get a prize. Boys love food, um, and that's always the prize which I give. Um, but no one's got it yet. They're all sort of 23, 24. So they're all they're all nearly there, but they're just they're striving for that day that I'll actually have to buy them something. Um, but yeah, I just I think at the end of the week it's nice to have that routine. They know what they're going to do, and um, there's no surprises. Um, I think personally, practicals on the last Friday period fives when I have them, that that would be the most challenging part because you've got the instructions to get them through um, if they've had bad lessons that day, that week. And you've got lots and lots of different factors you have to consider. Whereas if we're just doing a recap lesson there, they know exactly what they're getting. And um, kind of changing tax slightly, in terms of um, what this episode is about, te- teaching low attaining boys, are there any books that you've ever read um, linked to kind of uh, all, all kind of all boy kind of schools, if you like, that have had an influence? Is there anything that... Um, that other uh, you know, kind of listeners should kind of dig out in terms of uh, kind of tips and tricks, or is it kind of more that you've learned it on the job and you've just worked out what has worked? Um, so, is there any kind of reading recommendations for either teaching or generally, or, or specifically for boys in, in uh, secondary science? Um, for boys, I think it's sort of feeling it out as you go along. I know um, there's there's uh, the books out at the moment, Boys Don't Try, which seem to be very trendy, and they're great books. But when I've read them, especially teaching in an all boys school and other people within my school. Sort of things we do without thinking. Um, when I was training, I was really, really lucky to have um, a training session with um, a teacher from Dewsbury, and he focused on boys and lower attaining boys and white working class boys. And it was just the small things you don't think about. And it's not even how you teach the lessons, it's just making them feel important, making them feel special, making them feel like you actually know who they are. And it was small tips like if you have a conversation with them, the best talking used to um, happen whilst people are washing up because they're not facing each other nowadays uh, between parents and uh, children they happen in the car because again you're you're not really thinking you're talking um so if you ever have to have those sorts of difficult conversations it's always sort of distracted so you'll get them to do something else or you'll sit not face to face you won't make it um a lot of pressure it's gary wilson he's he's written a couple of books about boys 
Um, but the one which I read was Raising Boys Attainment. And it's, it's all of these simple things which you'd never think about, but make a massive difference when you're actually in the classroom. And is there anything you think, because obviously a lot of your, the principles I think you um, apply in your teaching um, may equally apply to low attaining girls. Is there any reason why you think some of them may or may or not be as, as useful? I guess it's difficult to say because obviously you just, you, you're teaching boys at the moment. Is there anything you think that um, would be different when you, if you were just look, working in a, in, a, in a girls' school? Or would you not like to say? <laughs> um, I don't think there would be. From, I, I share lots of resources and people say they use them with both boys and girls. So I, I think it's the same principles. It's, it's breaking everything down so it seems achievable. It's making them feel successful and it's overcoming those barriers. And I think if you can do those three things, regardless of the gender, it's, it's going to work for those pupils. I wanted to kind of uh, wrap up with a little kind of rec- another reading recommendation if you've got one. I know teachers don't have a lot of time to read, um, but is there any kind of popular science books you've read over the years that, you, that have really thought, well, the, these are the ones I'd really like to pass on to my students or the one I, I share the most? Is there anything that in your kind of uh, interest in science that you think this was a great book for whatever reason um, and you'd, you'd share that with you know some, a keen student? Um, not so much books. And again, this will make me sound a little bit odd. But plastination, um, I don't really teach much biology, but getting boys interested, um, that's that's a great thing to do. And the Body Worlds exhibit, we've taken boys there. And just the whole process of anatomy, I think that's the real grip. Um, That's the real thing which will get boys hooked on science. Um, And not just boys, but girls as well. And you show them that it's more than just learning in a classroom. Um, Obviously, I'm or I mainly teach physics. And physics is great. Um, Everyone knows about space. We've been lucky enough in the past as well. We were due to go to Florida uh, before the pandemic struck. And lots of people have helped us out. So uh, Leland Melvin sent a video message for the boys. And I think it's just small things like that um, where they see that science is more than just a textbook. Science is more than just a classroom, um, which really inspires them and helps them. Thank you. Um, where is the best place for people to kind of find your resources and get in touch with you? Are you online in any way? And where's the best best place to catch up with uh, all the work, good work you've done? Um, the main place I am is on Twitter and you can follow me at iteachboys92. And I've got a link to all of my resources in my Google Drive. And if there's anything anyone wants, they're more than welcome to ask for it. Brilliant. Thank you for talking to me this afternoon and best of luck in your school and, and inspiring those young boys in science. Thank you very much. Here we are at the end of another episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I hope you enjoyed this slice of science education goodness and got some inspiration and some practical advice from Adam to help you in your classroom. If you want to follow Adam, he is active on Twitter and you can find him with his Twitter handle, iteachboys92, where he shares his new ideas that he has been working on. Do you have something you're doing in your science department you'd like to share on the podcast? If so, please get in touch and send me an email at andy.woods at pearson.com and we can get the conversation started. It's time for me to head off now, but I look forward to seeing you again on the next episode. Goodbye for now.